Part of that, I want to actually, uh, as I state that, use that as an opportunity to plug. There is a uh, senior recital that's going to be taking place on Sunday, November 22nd. That's next week at 3 p.m. And it'll be at the Newton, Hob Newton Hobson over at uh, SWU. And that is for Ryan Mosley. And I want to encourage you guys. He has uh, uh, grown up in this church. It's a great opportunity for us to celebrate his talent as well. And uh, just to encourage him as you do so. Uh, this morning I want to share with you guys just a little bit about uh, uh, really the, the follow-up to the question that we've been talking about over the past several weeks. And several questions. We've looked at a couple of things that I think are very important to the body of Christ. First of all, we asked the question of why we are here. As individuals who were created for a purpose, what is that purpose? Well, that purpose is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. God created us for his pleasure to be able to use us and to change the world in which we live. So why we're here is clearly defined for us in scripture. Who we are, which is what we looked at last week, because of the fact that we are a part of the family of God, we are defined no, no longer by our past, but rather by the fact that we are now children of God. We're not his servants, we're not his slaves, but rather we are welcomed into the family as if we were literally adopted by our heavenly father. We are joint heirs with Jesus. And today I want to begin the first part of this. This is actually a two-week sermon, so it doesn't mean I'll hold you for the whole two weeks, but it means that I'll do part of it this week and then the other part next week. I want to begin to ask the question, why? I'm sorry, not why, when? I want to answer the question just a little bit. When is the Lord coming back? The truth is, I can't really give you a good, clear answer for that. In fact, it's a question a lot of people have asked over the years, but not really received the answer that they need. But I do believe that God has given us some direction on that so we can at least allow his scripture to reveal to us some of the signs. This is a question that was asked as early as when the disciples were with Jesus. They wanted to know when these things would take place, when Jesus would set up his kingdom. And when Jesus said that at the resurrection, the dead in Christ would rise first and then others would come and meet him in the air, most of the people in the audience believed that they themselves would be included with those who would meet them in the air. In other words, they expected Christ to come back and set up his kingdom even in their lifetimes. Since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's been no shortage of those who have predicted Christ's return. Just doing a quick study on historical predictions of when Jesus Christ would return, I found more than three dozen significant predictions. That may not sound like a huge number, but that's because I didn't include all of them. I didn't include the ones where it was just that individual who didn't have much of a following, many people who responded, but rather they made predictions and people just assumed, you guys are nuts. Still, there were others who claimed to be the Messiah coming back for his people. And in the process, they confirmed to the world that they truly were nuts. You have people like David Koresh or you have Jim Jones or many others that you can identify who believed that they were the second coming of Christ. But some of these folks had huge followings. The advent of new forms of technology has no doubt made such false revelations far more prevalent. In fact, the use of radio, of print, and of the internet 
seem to have significantly increased the frequency of such claims. Since the year 2000, for example, we have seen nine of these significant predictions. And it doesn't even include a movie that came out a few years ago entitled 2012. It was a movie based on a little bit of fact and a whole lot of fiction. Using the ancient Mayan long count calendar, which ended on or about December 21st, 2012, this movie asserted that huge cataclysmic events would take place, bringing about the end of this world as we know it. Without attempting to point people to Jesus Christ, it portrayed the wrath of God or the judgment of God upon the world. And then there was this guy, his name was uh, Harold Camping. Uh, He actually was uh, one of the, I think he was in charge of Family Radio, which was an organization that, I don't know if he founded it, but he was the president of it at the time. And he made the prediction that on May 21st, 2011, that the world would end, that Jesus Christ would come back. Actually, this was the second prediction he made. He made another one in 1994, and he missed the mark. So he thought, well, you know what? Maybe we'll redo the math. As he ran this station in the Phil- around the nation, the Philadelphia area was huge with family radio, which means there were an awful lot of people who were expecting May 21st, 2011 to be the day. In fact, there were individuals who would ride around town. They had spent their entire life savings, actually cashed out savings plans so that they could promote the word that you needed, needed to be ready for May 21st, 2011. There were individuals who would ride around with their RVs, with this plastered on the sides of their RVs. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near with the date, May 21st, 2011 on it. Man, were they disappointed on May 22nd, 2011. Because he missed the mark again. But he wouldn't be deterred. In fact, he would say afterwards, within the next coming days, he would say, you know what? I miscalculated, so it's going to be October 2011 instead. He missed the mark on that one too. But Harold Camping is not unique. Instead, we live in a world that is seeking the return of Christ. We want to know when. Who can remember the hysteria associated with Y2K? The young people are thinking, what is Y2K? The world is going to end. The stock market is going to crash. Power grids will fail. Water supplies will be compromised. And the world will fall into utter chaos. In addition to all the disaster preparedness that took place, there was concern that, might, that Christ might choose the end of the millennium as his date of return. There were at least six different well-respected figures who predicted that the Lord would return at the turn of this last century. It didn't happen. So when will the Lord come back? Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 36 through 44. I am going to tell you that the passage I'm going to read today is coming from the New Living Translation. Normally I'll read from the NIV, but I really like the way it was worded in the New Living Translation. Matthew chapter 24 Beginning in verse 36, by the way, this whole chapter deals with this question of when, but we're going to pick out a few verses from it. Beginning in verse 36 of Matthew 24, we read this. 
However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered the boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken the other left. So you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Now, when will this happen? In this passage, Jesus is describing an event that people have been seeking for centuries, the return of the Messiah. But when will it happen? And how will we know? Jesus begins by saying that no man knows the day nor the hour when these things will happen. That means that while many of the people that I've mentioned already may have had some sort of intelligence they could not have known when the world would end. They could not have known when Christ would come back. Jesus goes on to give an example from the days of Noah, the time of the flood in the book of Luke. He adds an example from the days of Lot, both showing that the people did not expect the judgment of God. Yet it still came. First through a flood and second through the fire. Jesus doesn't give a specific date. Instead, he simply tells us that the people who claim to know when it is, they're liars. They don't have a clue what they're talking about. Now, next week we'll focus on a passage in Mark chapter 13 a little bit where uh, four of the disciples actually ask Jesus the question, when will these things happen? And he gives them a little bit more detail about it. But today I want us to talk just a little bit. What will these events look like? What will it look like when the Lord does come back? With this event will come great rejoicing and great sorrow. For those who are ready to meet Christ, this will be the greatest day of celebration they could have ever imagined. All the pain and all the sorrow of this life will come to an end. According to Revelation 21 verse 4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying, or pain. In that aspect, the return of the Lord, the Messiah's second coming, is a great day that we ought to look forward to and rejoice over. I picture those in wheelchairs suddenly rising to their feet, those with cancer suddenly regaining their strength, and those who have been wrapped in grief suddenly filled with an unbelievable feeling of joy. As the hymn writer said, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. And I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and he leads me through the promised land, what a day, glorious day that will be. 
It will be a day of rejoicing and celebration. But while there is great rejoicing and celebration, not everybody will be so thrilled with the Lord's return. Instead, the passage refers to others who will be left behind. Well, what will happen to those who are left behind? And how will the distinction be made? Look with me at the answer to that question found in Revelation chapter 20. You can turn there if you would. This passage is one of the most sorrowful in all of God's word. But it is vital that we read it. You must know that I, as your pastor will not lose sleep over your physical ailments. Now, some of you guys are thinking, Pastor, you're supposed to hurt for us. You're supposed to care, and it's not that I don't care. But rather because I know that your physical ailments will pass. I don't lose sleep over your emotional trials because those will pass. But the one thing that I do lose sleep over is my concern for your eternal soul. Your physical issues will pass. Your emotional struggles will pass. But our souls are eternal. Look at the passage in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And listen to this. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment of God upon sinful humanity. It begins with the word and, or depending on the version you're looking at, the word then. This word ties together the passage that we've just read and the one that immediately precedes it. In the verses right before verse 11, we see the final judgment and destruction that comes upon Satan in preparation of a new heaven and a new earth. Before this new heaven and new earth can be established, there is something that has to be removed. It's sin. Remember for a moment a scene from the Dickens tale, A Christmas Story. In the scene, Ebenezer Scrooge is like a fly on the wall. Nobody can see or hear him, yet he is able to listen to a conversation where a family is talking about a horrible man. As they mock him and run him into the ground, Scrooge almost feels sorry for the man that's being described. And then he hears the man's name. Ebenezer Scrooge. They've been talking about him. Well, imagine for a moment being the fly on the wall as the new kingdom is about to be established. You hear the Father, the Son, and the Spirit talking about what must be done. And the Father says that there's no room for sin in his kingdom. So judgment must first come upon those who have perverted God's creation. 
First you hear Satan's name and you don't object because he deserves God's judgment. But then you hear it. Your name is called. You see, even though you're not necessarily a bad person, your sin, whether great or small, doesn't belong in heaven. It perverts what God has called and created to be pure. Therefore, you too deserve God's judgment. Revelation 21 verse 27 says, Nothing impure will, enter, will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God won't allow your sin in his kingdom. You say, well, I don't know if I like that. <laughs> Perhaps you think it's unfair. I've heard people say that if God is so judgmental and cruel, then I don't know if I want to spend eternity with him. We have our own picture of what heaven should look like or who should get in, yet I want you to notice in the passage and how it begins, it says, And I saw a great white throne. It doesn't say, I saw my throne. And it doesn't say, I saw your throne. But I saw a great white throne. And who sits on that throne? It is God himself. And if God has determined that only those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb can enter into his kingdom, then only those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb can enter into his kingdom. It's his kingdom, and it's his decision. It's not our place to determine who gets there, but rather it is his. Realize there are only two options for all of God's creation. According to Revelation 20, anyone whose name has not been written down in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. If your name is not written in this book of life, you will experience eternal death in the lake of fire. Not because God doesn't love you, but rather to protect you for all eternity from the effects of sin. As we look around at our world today, consider the things that have happened just over this past week. Greg mentioned at the beginning of the service, he was talking about uh, several terrorist attacks that have occurred. Horrible tragedies. Hundreds of people have died this week as a result of those attacks. Consider this family, the, the Blackburn family, and the incredible sorrow that they are experiencing this very day as they say goodbye to a young woman who just wanted to serve the Lord. Do you want a hell? I'm sorry, do you want a heaven that would allow such tragedy and loss and the wages of sin, which is death, to exist? I'll tell you the truth. When I think of heaven, I think of it as a beautiful place that is filled with nothing but peace and joy and happiness in the presence of God. They no longer need a sun because the light of God literally lights up everything all the time. It's a place of complete contentment because we are in the presence of a holy God who has made it a beautiful place. Why would God allow sin to come in and pervert such a beautiful thing? 
It's not his plan. Therefore, God will not allow us to enter into his kingdom with our sin, but rather we must leave that behind. Know that it's not God's will that any should perish. He would prefer for all of humanity to avoid the lake of fire, but he can't permit sin to pervert eternity. How can I get in? Maybe this discourages you a little bit. You look at your life and you know that sin is present. How could I ever be good enough to enter into heaven? You guys know the deal. You can't. You're not good enough. And no matter what you do, you cannot become good enough of your own merit. But as discouraging as that sounds, I want you to know that through Jesus Christ, every sin you've ever committed can be washed away. As if you had never done it in the first place. By confessing your sin to God and allowing Christ to take his rightful position as the Lord of your life, you can be forgiven. According to Micah 7.19, we read, He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, never to be held against us again. Now let me make sure you understand what I'm saying here. As some have taken the word of God out of context just a little bit, some would suggest that if you simply believe in Jesus and then say a prayer, then you get to heaven. Well, the truth is Satan believes in Jesus, but he'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. Prayer and confession is a great place to start, but the real thing that God is looking for from us is surrender. Romans 6.13 says, Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. Give yourselves completely to God. That is surrender. Later in Romans 6.19, we see it again. Paul writes, Because of the weakness of your human nature, I am using the illustration of slavery to help you understand all this. Previously, you let yourselves be slaves to impurity and lawlessness, lawlessness, which led even deeper into sin. Now you must give yourselves to be slaves to righteous living so that you will become holy. Again, give yourself. He's looking for people who will surrender their will and themselves over to him. What does surrender look like? If God's word tells us to do something, do it. If God's word tells you not to do it, don't do it. It's pretty simple. It is a casting aside of our will to embrace his will. Now, perhaps you're not sure you want to surrender your life to God. Yet, I want to be very clear that today you can walk out of this place. You can leave here today without seeking God's forgiveness and grace. And you may have another opportunity to call upon the name of the Lord. And I hope and pray that you do. But I cannot promise anyone here another opportunity. I don't know when the Lord is going to come back. We're going to talk about some of that next time. I don't know exactly the date. It may be that it happens 100 years from now. I gave you at the beginning, I talked about the fact that the disciples expected it to happen in their lifetime. For generations, that's been the case. People have expected that the Lord would come back 
in a specific time. I remember in 1988, I was still a teenager at the time, but there was a book that was out that was entitled 88 Reasons Why the Lord is Coming Back in 1988. And in 1989, it was 89 Reasons Why the Lord's Coming Back. It was the same guy who wrote it the second time. Here's, here's the point. We don't know when it's going to happen. My prayer is that everyone in here is ready when that day comes. Because as much as, as much as I would love to tell you when it's going to happen, what really matters to me, and this is what I've been focused on today, it's not when it's going to happen, but what is going to happen. He is coming back. And when he comes back, some will rejoice and some will mourn. Regardless of when it is, you need to be ready. I look forward to that day. You guys know my favorite verse of scripture comes from Revelation 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. That is a promise from Jesus Christ that we will have the opportunity as overcomers, as those who have been victorious, as those who will rejoice on that day, we will have the opportunity to come and to sit on the lap of Jesus Christ, to simply enjoy his presence. Maybe we'll want to ask questions. Maybe we'll just want to wrap our arms around him and love him. Maybe we'll want to touch the holes in his hand. Maybe we'll want to, I don't know. Maybe we'll just want to worship. What an incredible moment that will be for us but it breaks my heart to think that there may be those that I love and care about in this congregation and in our families that when that day comes, it will not be a day of great rejoicing. My prayer today is that you would examine your own heart and ask the Lord to examine that heart. And if it be that you are not ready today, that you would get ready. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, thank you for the grace that you've offered to us. Thank you for the, the promise that has been extended to us to, to one day be able to enter into your presence. Not just because we went to a church and we felt the spirit of the Lord but to be able to come into your presence, to come into your kingdom and know that you are there with us and that you will be there with us for all eternity. Lord, we look forward to the day of your return. And we do ask the question, when? Because Lord, we want it to happen now. We want you to come back to take away all the sin and the sorrow and the pain and all of the regret that comes with this world. As much as we want to see that happen now, Lord, it breaks our hearts to know that there are those who perhaps are not ready for that coming. Lord, I pray today that you would send your Holy Spirit to us right now, that you would examine our hearts. But if there be one here today that does not know you, Lord, I pray that right now you would Fill them with your spirit. You tell us that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just, and you will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So right now I ask 
that as they confess quietly to themselves, Lord, that you would cleanse them from all unrighteousness, that you would forgive them never to bring it up again, cast it into the sea, just as the prophet Micah foretold. Lord, I pray today that each of us would be able to approach that coming day of judgment, not only with a peace, but a sense of anticipation, knowing that this is going to be amazing. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, if you have prayed this morning to ask God to forgive you so that your heart would be ready, I just want to be able to pray for you I want to be able to encourage you. Would you just raise your hand where you are and it'll give me the chance just to, and I won't embarrass you, call you out or anything. Father, I pray for those hands, the, the two hands that were just raised. I pray right now that you would fill them with your spirit. But I pray that you would allow them to come boldly before your throne. And I pray that as they come boldly before your throne, they would not be identified by their sin or their past, but rather by the grace of Jesus Christ in their lives. Help them to live that surrendered life, to be transformed, so that when that day comes, there'll be no question. They know they're ready. Because on this day, they surrendered it all to you. Lord, we praise you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we get ready to close out our time together, we're going to participate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We don't do this every week, but we do try to do it relatively often. A part of the reason we do this is to celebrate what Jesus Christ did. I will tell you that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in many ways brings the idea of sorrow because this is our king. This is the one who was perfect in every way, yet he laid down his life. And there's this sense of, I can't believe they did this to him. But what I want you to understand today as we participate in the Lord's Supper is that Jesus was not forced into this act of sacrifice. Jesus willingly laid down his life so that our sins could be forgiven. From the moment of creation, this was God's plan. That God would demonstrate his love in such a mighty way that people would know that he loved us more than anything. It wasn't as if this was a plan B. You know, God, God intended for humanity to enjoy God and all, I guess humanity fell apart. And God said, I wonder what we could do to fix this. Actually, from the very beginning, God's plan was for Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is redemption for every single one of us. Today, as we participate in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, I want to challenge you to consider what his sacrifice means to you. What does it mean to you? Have you been changed? Are you the same person you were before? I will tell you that Christ's sacrifice to me means that I have been given a new lease on life. I'm not the same man that I was. And I know it's been 20 plus years since I gave my heart to Christ. But I'm going to tell you that I had the potential to walk a very ugly path if not for the grace of Jesus Christ. 
I will tell you that for me, it's not even just about what's happened over the past 20 plus years, but it is about that future. We're talking about when the Lord's coming back. I'm telling you, without the broken body of Christ, without the shed blood of Christ, there is no hope. There's no reason to ask the when. Because all that would await us is death. Because none of us is righteous enough to get in on our own. What does the sacrifice of Jesus Christ mean to you? We're going to open up the uh, front here in just a moment. I've got several uh, individuals who are going to come up and help me serve communion to you this morning. But as we do, I want this to be more than a ritual. Let it be a time truly to reflect on what God has done for you. I'm going to ask if you would, and we're going to invite people to come down the center aisles. Uh, actually, I don't care which aisle you come down. You guys come down, y'all figure out which way to come back out and all that stuff. But I will ask that everyone receive the, the cup and the bread and then take it back to your pews, and then we'll all actually partake in it at the same time. I would like to pray, and if the, uh, if the ministers that I've talked to, if y'all could come forward and help, that would be great. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Lord, you willingly sent your son to die for us, allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. Lord, help us to live as those who truly do appreciate that sacrifice. Remind us today of how good you've been. Help us to truly appreciate it today as we participate in this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If the Individuals will come forward. We invite you to come this morning and receive the elements of the Lord's Supper today. As Jesus met with his disciples, he shared with them about the things that would take place on the night of his arrest and in the days that would follow. And as he talked with them, he talked about things that were very foreign to them. They saw him as the coming king. They saw him as the one who would set up his new kingdom. And that's exactly what he was and that's exactly what he would do. But he would use methods that were very foreign to them. They were used to an individual or a government that might rise up but rarely would they see an individual who would willingly lay himself down in order to become greater and that's what Jesus Christ would do as the one who laid down his life he is now the one who is able to overcome everything else today we celebrate him as Jesus met with his disciples he said this bread a common ordinary thing that you use at just about every meal it represents my body that is broken for you. He said, every time you eat this, I want you to remember what I did. Do this in remembrance of me. He also used wine. We're using grape juice, but it's the same idea. This was something that was used at every meal. As families sat together and talked, as they shared together, they drank not in excess, but rather they drank simply as a, a way to whet the appetite. Yet Jesus says, this represents my blood. 
And every time you drink this, you need to remember that I shed my blood for you. Your sins have been forgiven because of the blood that was shed for you. Not just on a Sunday morning when you have service, but every time you get together, you ought to be reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He said, this represents my blood. Every time you drink it, remember what I've done for you. Let's pray once more. Father, we come before you so grateful for the body and the blood. Thank you that you would lay down your life so willingly for us. Thank you for your sacrifice. Help us now to live as a sacrifice for you. May you be pleased with us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys for being willing to to serve. Thank you all for being a part of our worship service this morning. I will encourage you, if you would leave your cups in the pews, we'll come back and we'll take care of those. We will be participating again in communion uh, on uh, Christmas Eve, just to let you guys know as well. So thank you for being with us. Go in peace.